0: Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3 as we continue our study of this powerful letter. The book of Galatians in many ways is written for the conscientious as well as for the confused. I say that because Paul is addressing a people who are not uh, taking anything lightly, but their consciences are making them ask the question, what do I need to do? How am I supposed to live? And as a consequence, they have gotten a little bit confused and Paul is writing to them. Sometimes people think that the book of Galatians and the book of James are in conflict with one another, and they are not. They're simply addressing different kinds of people james writes his letter to the apathetic people who think they prayed the sinner's prayer at some point they have enough doctrine to believe god loves them and so they're set they go about their life and give no consideration as to what it means to live as one who is a follower of jesus christ paul's writing this letter both to people who understand that and are confusing what it means to live with a as a follower of christ with being a follower of Jesus christ as well as those who are confused because they see Christians who seem to suggest that Christianity is about Jesus plus following whatever set of rules. Paul writes this letter for people like for you and for me. And this morning we shift gears a little bit as Paul continues with his theme, his discussion, to show just the greatness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Not that we are great because of that, but the greatness of Christ and what he allows us to do. We pick up our reading in verse 23 as for part of the context, uh, and we'll continue through verse 7 of chapter 4. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we consider his word. Our Father, we do come to this time and pray that you, according to your promise, would be at work within all who are here, that we might not only hear but be willing to receive that our minds would be renewed according to your truth, that we would not try to make what you say fit with what we are inclined to believe, and that our hearts will receive the rest that you desire, but even more than that, that we will see the love that will thou cause us to love, which leads to holy obedience. Father, we pray that you would make uh, comfortable those who are uncomfortable in the awareness of their brokenness and yet, at the same time, you would make uncomfortable those who find security in their goodness, that they might find their hope and real comfort in your grace through Christ alone. It's in him that we pray for his glory, but for our joy, we pray in Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Hear the word of God. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. But a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. May the Lord bless us and grant us understanding from his word. I imagine few here this morning would disagree that the root of many, if not most, of our social problems is the tragic reality of the absentee father. Sociologists tell us that one of the great predictors, or most accurate predictors of poverty or teen pregnancy, or high school dropouts is a fatherless home. If you've worked at all with prison ministry, you probably are aware that statistics tell us that 90% of incarcerated men grew up in fatherless homes. 90% of those who are in prison grew up without a father in their lives. So it does seem, as we consider the statistics and whether believer or unbeliever, most seem to be aware that we could clean up many of our social issues, many of our social ills, if men would simply be faithful to their wives and conscientious toward their children. Because a father makes all the difference in the world. Many of you here, probably most of you here, grew up in homes where you had fathers. Flawed though they may have been, nevertheless were involved in your life provided a model for you, principle, discipline, guidance. And then for many of us, we had fathers who believed in us when perhaps all the evidence at the presently available would probably suggest maybe they shouldn't have. But they continued to encourage and demonstrate for us some aspect of what it means to be a man, to be a citizen, to be a person. And then many of you also grew up, in addition to those who had fathers that have character but godly examples as well, so that rather than just teaching you how to be good, that you would be gods. It makes a tremendous difference in those who had such an upbringing, whether you had godly parents or just conscientious father. You in many ways were started with a head start in life. You were given a, a foot up because God blessed you with that. Yet that even as I say that, I realize that there are many who are here, many part of this congregation, many in our culture, who did not have that advantage. Some of you here would say, but I didn't have a father. Perhaps your father died prematurely while you were still young or before you had come to full maturity. Perhaps your father, unfortunately, as too many have done, uh, left or was never present in the first place others will say, well, I had a father, but I did not have a relationship with my father. When I was working in youth ministry. One of the young ladies that was part of the group who has had a tremendous family background on her, her mother's side and uh, was blessed and has grown into a, a mature, godly woman who was actually engaging in ministry. Some of you are familiar with her music. But as we were talking about the issue of father, God as father, She made the observation that she had a father, but she didn't have a daddy because her father couldn't handle an issue within the family. Ironically through, genetically through his family, there was a degenerative condition that at the age of two and a half years old, she lost her sight, became blind, the guilt, whatever it weighed, created tensions in the family, eventually he bailed. It was never just totally gone but he was not involved in the life. And as a result, she reflects what, unfortunately, many other people have. Is there somebody who's occupying a space in the life and yet not fulfilling the necessity of the role? And even worse and more tragic, many of you have experienced suffering at the hands of your father, totally opposite of the way that things ought to be. The great news of the gospel is this, is that in Christ Jesus, the fatherhood of God is available to all who believe. And that's what Paul is passionately trying to get the Galatians to remember here, in the passage that we have before us. Up to this point, Paul's been dealing with some very important concepts uh, that are important for us always to understand. He's been dealing with the issue of how we are made right with God, how we relate to God. theological word is Justification. And he's reminding them that they were justified, they were made right with God, not because they had earned a certain number of merits and therefore qualified as having a relationship to be pardoned by God, but using the theological and the legal concept of justification, said, look, you were justified by God's grace through Christ who was a gift for you. That When you believed, this is what Paul is telling them, when you believed, you were counted as righteous and you were forgiven of your sin. God, standing as the judge, has pardoned you and declared you to be righteous simply because of Christ and your trust in him, not because of anything that you have done, but because of God's grace and his gift alone. And then Paul tries to deal with a question that many of us wrestle with. In fact, probably all of us periodically need to press the reset button and make sure that we are on the right page. But he's talking about how we grow as Christians in the Christian life. How do we mature as Christians? How is it that we're supposed to live? The theological word there is sanctification. And Paul makes sure that we understand that the sanctification, our spiritual growth, is directly tied to our justification, how we're made right by, uh, by God uh, through his provision of Christ. But Paul's doing this because the Galatians experienced the same kind of difficulty, same problem, same confusion that many of us can uh, deal with. They had gotten things backwards. They had put in the cart in front of the horse. And therefore, they were experiencing powerlessness, frustration, lovelessness, angst, just as many of us do. Theologically speaking, it's vitally important, and this is what Paul is telling us in this letter, is that, I'm going to get theological here for a moment, this is my foreign language for most of you, but hopefully by the time we're done with this, we'll all be speaking the same language. We base our sanctification, we base our lives on our justification. Paul's clear in the relationship. Most people believe that one way or another, but most people get it reversed if asked how do you know that God loves you most people will look at the things that they have done like I got up in the morning on a blustery windy day when no sane person would ever get out of bed and I went to church that's a commendable thing it may not make sense we are all fools together but we're fools for Christ so that part is good or I'm engaged in this ministry I help the poor I help children and any number of very commendable things And we look at those things and we say, see, God must be impressed with me. So God must love me because look what I do. The reality of what Paul is trying to say is that leads to frustration. It leads to um, insecurity. And that's not the way that God is designed. The connection is right, but it's reversed. And the reality is we know that God loves us because he sent his son as a gift to die in our place. And that through believing that, we are declared right, we are set free, we are empowered to live. And in knowing that we are set right, knowing that we are free, we now live our lives in relationship to God. It's important that we get those things in the right order. And the Galatians were simply doing what many of us do, I think probably all of us at some point or another, is they were just confusing the order which was leading to a problem. Paul pours all of his passion into explaining we've got to get this right you need to understand the basis of your relationship with God and if you get that right other things will fall into place but if you get that out of order everything else is going to be messed up. And now Paul shifts gears into another imagery here without any warning, but showing the relationship of what he's talking about to our relationship with God. Paul moves from the very important discussion of justification and sanctification to the doctrine of adoption. Theologian J.I. Packer has made the observation that as great as the two doctrines of justification and sanctification are, there's something even greater and that is the doctrine of adoption. What I suspect that he means there is while the justification creates the foundation and it's absolutely necessary for us, justification enables us to relate to God as a judge realizing we're in good with the law, we're in good with the judge. Whereas adoption says rather than having God as a judge, we have God as our Father. And that is a significant importance for us to allow to sink in. See, up to this point, Paul has been essentially giving us the, the words of the gospel through justification and sanctification, but through the doctrine of adoption, Paul gives us the music and gives us reason to sing. Because not only is there some status that we're set free, we are accepted, we are loved, we are protected, we have all the privileges of sons. And Paul pours that into these words here, and he's saying to them, look, do you understand? You became justified by faith, you became children of God by faith. And as we explore what Paul says, I want to do so using three simple words, kind of to break the passage up, but all of them are vitally important for our lives first word is identity, the second word is security, and the third word is maturity. And as we look at these things, you'll see where we go, uh, how, the, how the, these things fit in. But let's begin with the whole issue of our identity. As Paul is writing this letter, he is reminding us that our identity is as the children of God. It just permeates this, uh, this whole passage when he's talking about us being sons uh, and, and children, um, that God is our Father. It, it's, the, it's the theme of this particular, um, this particular section of the scriptures. Now, the whole idea of the children of God is not something that in one sense is very foreign. All sorts of people talk about being a child of God. In fact, a very common phrase would be here is we're all God's children, and which is supposedly invoked in order to help us to just get along when we have differences. Not a bad thing. And not entirely wrong, because it is true in one sense that every person who has been born has been created by God. God is the originator of everyone, and everyone has been born bears God's image, therefore has inherent value, should be treated with dignity, because God is their creator. And there are scriptures that tell us that God loves that which he has created. And he pours out his love upon all the peoples of the earth. And yet the number of scriptures that talk in those, that kind of language pale in comparison to the overwhelming number that talk about God having a specific people that he has called to himself and he has made their children. And as Paul points out in this particular passage, as you look at it, is the people of God are those who belong to him because they have faith in Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, the only ones who truly are the children of God are those who believe in Christ and are trusting Him. And Paul deals with that and uses several imagery, images here in these passages to help us to understand our identity as children of God. And so when we look in, in these verses, beginning in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ also put on Christ. There's some powerful things that we understand that help to reinforce the image that we have, that we must remember that we who have believed in Christ are children of God. The very first of that is when he says, for all uh, um, who have trusted in Christ are, or excuse me, for all in Christ, Jesus, are all sons of God. Now, we need to look at that language. It might sound a little odd for a second because obviously at least half of you sitting here are probably nobody's sons um you are daughters and so therefore a number of people would say well why can't we just be sons and daughters of God and certainly that is true as well but if we were to neuter this particular passage while it doesn't change the status in some ways it does change the significance of the promises that Paul is making here using the imagery Paul in this passage is not in any way suggesting that there's a superiority of man or of men That those who are women, those who would be daughters of God, should aspire to become men or just lament the fact that God didn't create you that way. That's not being suggested here in any way, shape, or form. In fact, Paul is pretty adamant about that here in a few verses later when he says, look, in Christ there's no male or female. We'll get to that in a second is what he's saying and what he's not saying. But he is not in any way saying there's a superiority. But he is recognizing a cultural reality at that time that still permeates most of the world, really anywhere in the world that the gospel has not gone to. Because anywhere where the gospel has not touched, women are, at best, second-class citizens. And maybe a little worse than that is they are possessions, and sometimes they're not even that good. The radical nature of the gospel, where the gospel has gone, regardless of how far we may have to go in our understanding of things, radically elevated women in terms of a level of equality being made after the image of God. And yet, Paul, writing to these people, recognizing the cultural reality, is saying that in that culture, only sons received an inheritance. Only sons were the beneficiaries of all of the promises, all of the power, all of the gifts that the father had. And so if you were a daughter of a good man, you would be taken care of, but you didn't receive the inheritance. You didn't receive the benefits of the promise that only went to the sons. But what Paul is saying here is if you are trusting in Christ, you are all, whether you're male or female, you are all sons, put quotations around that. In other words, every one of you who has trusted in Christ receives the benefit of the promise and all of the inheritance that it, and what it goes with it. It doesn't matter, male or female. And Paul goes on, doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek. And in this, he's breaking down the stereotypes. There is no classification showing that we all who are broken, who are in need, regardless of our background, regardless of our makeup, we all stand before God on the same basis and we are all received by God on the same basis, which is through confession of our brokenness and our sin and receiving by faith the gift that was promised and delivered in Jesus Christ. We all stand together and so Paul is saying, look, as many who are in Christ, language of Paul saying that we're unified, and he talks about that in a moment too. The promise is yours. Even when many of the original readers, the women sitting in that church, would think this is astounding. Paul uses the image here of being baptized into Christ. And it's important that we understand here he's not talking about water baptism. He's using the image of baptism and he's using the significance of baptism to point out our status as being children of God. And he's saying not so much being baptized by water, but baptized by Christ. Baptism marks us as belonging to the household of God. Being in Christ marks us as belonging to God, being his children. All who are baptized into Christ. And it demonstrates the union that we have with Christ because we are in him, baptized in Christ, all who are in Christ. What Paul's talking about is the unity and the union that we have because we are all the children of God. Paul then goes on and uses another imagery in in the ESV that I'm reading, and it says, for all who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, which is a little harder to understand or doesn't scream out the way that some other translations, but other translations talk about our being clothed in Christ. Clothing dictates, clothing identifies and if you are a military or military background, when you are in uniform, it identifies you, your branch of the service, your rank, it allows you access to certain places that they won't let us in if we are not part. Others vocationally, you wear uniforms that identify who you are, what it is that you do. Others have been part of teams that show by wearing a certain uniform, identifies who you belong to, and Paul is saying those who are in Christ, we are clothed in Christ. Christ identifies who we are, who we belong to, where we belong. And when we receive Christ, God in essence then clothes us in Christ as well. And Paul is saying, look, all of these imageries all testify, all of these realities that have taken place simply because you believed. these all are reminders to you and testimony to the people who know you that you are the children of God. And Paul wraps that part up and understanding, look, this is our identity. And he says in verse 29, and if you are Christ's, which then means we are children of God, Then you are Abraham's offspring, going back to the promise that all the promises of God given to Abraham, the whole covenant is wrapped up in in who belongs to Abraham, but you were heirs of Abraham according to promise. And Paul is saying, you receive this simply because God made a promise, and the promise is the gospel, that all who believe the gospel receive every benefit and are children of God. You didn't earn your way into this. It's not like you decided, any of you biologically decided, you know what? I'm going to work really hard, and I can get into that family. They will take me. Even those who perhaps were adopted in childhood, there was nothing that you did. You were simply chosen because somebody loved you, took initiative, made you theirs. Paul is saying our status is that we are children of God. And there is clear evidence of that. There is markings of that. And we need to be reminded of that, who we are. And we need to be reminded of how we became who we are. We are the children of God. And we became children of God because of God's promise. God's work in us to enable us to believe that promise through which we received all of the benefits of the promise. But now we move to the second word. And that word is security. The question is, are we secure? Even if I can accept that, even if I believe that, are we secure? We've all heard stories, many of us know people, who have had the horror stories with adoption. Some good friends of ours a number of years ago, Tony and Cindy had adopted a little girl. They were not able to have children because Cindy was in an accident, and, but they wonderful people, wanted to pour their love into somebody, and so they went through the process of adoption, caring for a, 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 young, a young mother who was uh, expecting to deliver, who realized that she needed to put her child up for adoption, received the child at the time of his birth, brought the child home, had the child in their home, and then without notice on Christmas Eve, two weeks after they brought the child in their home, the birth mother invoked a clause in the agreement that allowed her within two weeks of the adoption to change her mind and take the child back. And So here on Christmas Eve, this child that they've not only loved before they met, but who they'd had for two weeks. And if you've had children, you bring them home, you know because you haven't slept for the two weeks. But you, um, there is a bonding that it takes place. There is a love. It doesn't really matter, and it's only been two weeks your heart is ripped out when you hand that child over and it's exactly what happened to them. They were devastated. In fact, for a while, they weren't sure that they would ever even go through that process again. Eventually, they decided they would just do international adoption, assuming that that would be uh, less likely for, uh, for their child to be taken from them. And, and I don't know the end of the story. The mother may have grown up, may have wised up, may have had parents that invested and allowed her to grow up, and that child who would probably be about 20 years old now, may have had a wonderful life, may be a godly person, and and things may be the way they ought to be. What I'm talking about is we all have this question, or perhaps should ask the question, just because we know that adoption takes place, we know that sometimes something tragic happens. Is that the story of the gospel? scripture says unequivocally it is not the story of the gospel and paul in in these next verses helps us to understand the reason that it is not the story of the gospel and he reminds us and he shows us that we are secure because the work of the son secures our adoption and that cannot be undone and cannot be annulled and so in the first few verses of, uh, verse, of chapter 4 paul talks about kind of the difference between the slave and the and the, and the son but we see in verse 4 Paul showing the work of the Son and what took place. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And this is a powerful, powerful promise that Paul is saying through the work of the Son. It begins with when the fullness of time had come. In other words, it's the time when the Father had appointed it. It had come to full fruition. It's the time from which those who, as Paul was talking about, were living as custodial or under the authority of others, received the full benefits of being the heirs according to the promise. If you enjoy history, you've probably been up to the Shirley Plantation, and a few months ago we went, and I was intrigued as they were talking about the history of that plantation, the oldest one in the United States. It's been in the same family for over 400 years, but there was a point somewhere around the Civil War where the man who owned the entire plantation died prematurely, and his sons were still minors, significant minors, 10, 11 years old. They were the inheritors, they inherited everything. Everything belonged to them, but I guess they had decided that at 11 years old, he wasn't ready to run a whole plantation, hadn't developed a business since yet. And so the man who had died, the owner of the plantation, his brother came and lived on the plantation, managed everything, guardian of the children, and ran the business until the one who was to receive it became of full age and was able to manage it on his own. At which time, The time appointed by the father everything was transferred over to the son he received it all the uncle continued on was provided for there was plenty to go around Uh, but the one who rightly had owned all things for over 10 years even though he was treated as if he was a servant if it wasn't his received all of the things that because the time had come the appointed time had come what paul is reminding us at god's appointed time Which was the coming of Christ. The law had served to guide us, to break us, to show us our need. But when the promise had come, Christ, at God's appointed time, everything changes. And Paul says, at God's appointed time, when the time had fully come, then Christ, well, I mean, I'll just rather than summarizing, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The time had come, and it's important that we understand that when in Christ, everything shifted. It's also recognized that in adoption, there's a process and the process needs to be done and it needs to be done completely. There are details, everything needs to be done. According to the details, everything needs to be uh, fulfilled. But The details that Paul is writing here reminds us that God accomplished everything. Born of a woman is not just window dressing. It is significant because one, it connects to the promise that God had made with Adam and Eve right after they'd been evicted from the garden that through the seed of a woman would come the promised Messiah, the one who would deliver his people, the one who would be the hope and the fulfillment of all prophecy, and the one who would restore all things to the way that they originally had been. That was the promise. So born of the woman reminds us of that, but it also says Jesus having been born of a woman was human which was necessary for him to be qualified to stand in our place. Born under the law also was vitally important because it qualified Jesus or shows his qualification. He fulfilled all the requirements. There was nothing left to do. Because had he been born outside of the law, ironically, though, he's the one who gave the law. But if he had not been subject to the law then he's not an adequate substitute. But Jesus came under the law and he, unlike anyone else in history, kept the law. There was not one thing that he did to violate it. There was not one thing that was left lacking. Jesus Christ, fully man, nevertheless, kept the law, was without sin. And because he met the obligations of the prophecy, because he met the obligations of the demands, he is able to become an adequate substitute for us. So he gave his life for us, substituting himself in, paying the penalty that we needed to pay. Price has been paid. We, by believing in what he's done, are able to be set free. And that also touches on another aspect of adoption. Anybody who's been involved with adoption knows that adoption is not cheap. You may either have done it or maybe you have friends and you realize that unless they are independently wealthy, a lot of times they need to budget or figure out where we're gonna get these thousands and thousands of dollars so that we can pay for the process, we can redeem the child that we want. And yet that's exactly what Paul says, that because Christ born of the woman, born under the law, he lived his life but in verse five, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, the fact that we have been purchased, the fact that it's been paid for, is not something that is cheap. It's not that God just said, ah, forget it. God said, what I commanded must be met. You did not and you cannot, but I will provide and in Christ, everything God demanded was met, including the penalty for our failure, the debt that we owed. Jesus paid that with his very life. He was broken when we deserved to be broken. His blood was shed when our blood deserved to be shed. He died so that we don't need to, so that we can live in him. And so we hear Paul giving the language of the security. The work of the son has secured it. Jesus has done everything necessary for the adoption process. And Paul is being very clear here that you are sons, whether you're male or female, because of what Jesus has done according to the promise. The question is, do you believe the promise or do you not? And so it really leads us to this question. Now, one is, do you believe the promise? And then second is, for those who do believe the promise... Do you spend your time of meditation focusing on the security that was purchased for you by the son that made you an heir? Or do you consider your insecurity, the inadequacies of all that your works are trying to accomplish? Paul is saying here not that what we do is unimportant. Do not hear that ever is what Paul is that be inconsistent with all that he says. But he's saying the hope, the foundation, what makes us Christians, children of God, is not what we do, but what Christ has done. Are we remembering, reminding ourselves, believing that? And Paul moves on to what I'll call maturity. Granted, it's a little bit of a stretch, but I was on a roll trying to make things, but it it does fit. Because we see in the final verses, particularly in verse 6, that the work of the Spirit deepens our sonship. What God has already made real. As we believe, we are sons of God with all the benefits of the promise. The Holy Spirit is at work within all who believe to enable us to to deepen our experience and our enjoyment of what already is true. Listen to what verse 6 says. And because you are sons, past tense, already happened because the Son of God, Jesus has done this for us. God sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We need to note to hear that the moment that we were adopted, which happens the moment that we believed, we receive the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen because of anything we've done. Paul's already made that clear. Chapter earlier, Paul says, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Spirit because you believed or because you behaved? The rhetorical question clearly drives them to say, it's because we believed. We know that we received the Spirit because we believed. But they received the Spirit because they believed. They received the Spirit when they believed. It had nothing to do with How they earned it or deserved it or promised to make payback, make good on what they had been given. It has absolutely nothing to do with speaking in languages that the people next to you cannot understand. It has nothing to do with any miracles or second renewal. Paul here is very clear, and it's important that we as Christians understand this because many Christians don't. When you believe, you receive the deposit of the Holy Spirit. It's the first down payment of the promise. But with that down payment comes everything along with it. Because the Holy Spirit, who sometimes is very confusing in Scripture, but we are told that you know, at times he's like a rushing wind. So most of you have an idea of that if you were awake at all last night. Kind of powerful, unnerving, scary. And yet that power is at work within you because he has been given to you as a down payment, all the fullness of Christ the power of God is in the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, he is also God. And he is given to you when you believe. And God sends his always spirit who is always with us and always speaking to us in mind and to our hearts about everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did. The Holy Spirit does bring conviction. It does point, he does point out to us at times Here's where you're messing up. Here's where you're out of step. In fact, the Holy Spirit's doing that right now to the Galatians and to any of us who really desperately want something of what we do to contribute to our salvation. And he's pointing out and saying, put all things in their proper place. You are broken and helpless, but you are loved. And here's how you know that you are loved. God sent his own son to become like you, to die for you, to give you life, to make you his son's. That's how you know that you're loved. The Holy Spirit is continually speaking of this, and then he is teaching us and correcting us, pointing to what Jesus said as compared to what we're thinking, what we're believing, how we're living, not for the purpose of condemning, but for the purpose of correcting and enable us to grow more and more to be like Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand and to enjoy our new status. Gives us a new cry, Abba, Father, Father. It's Aramaic for daddy. And that cry itself just reminds us of an intimacy and a confidence that we have that we already have been made children. As Tim Hutchison reminded me after the first service, that spirit is at work within us and help us to recognize the attachment that we have. And from his own experience, and just saying that once, the, uh, once they went through the process of adoption, there's no difference between any of their kids. And yet, Those of us who are adopted sometimes need to believe what has already been extended to us. And the cry Abba Father that says we are God's children helps to remind us that we belong, we belong to God the Father. Some may wonder, probably most don't, but you will when I'm done asking this question. Why an Aramaic word when Paul, who was a Jew, writing to people who speak Greek? And the simple answer is because Abba is the cry of Jesus. And it is a reminder to us when Paul is saying that we get to cry out Abba, Daddy, Father. Not only do we have an intimacy with God the Father, but that we have the same cry. We cry the same cry as Jesus does. And we are heard just as Jesus is because now that we are sons and heirs of God, we have the same rights that Jesus does. Now, that somehow seems very inappropriate to me, but that is the promise of God. Do you believe that you have the same rights as Jesus? That when you cry out, God hears you just as he hears Jesus? Paul is saying this is the amazing position that is given to those who believe you are sons of God. You are God's children. It has been secured for you. We're growing into it. There's still work work of the Spirit in us to help us to grow into the likeness of God, to help us to become like him, and even to believe this stuff. The Holy Spirit is at work. And yet it is so mind-boggling that it is difficult to believe. And because of that, we fall into the trap that Paul sort of describes here. He alludes to it in verse 7. He says, look, you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. He's going back and saying, you're no longer those who are told to keep the rules because the rules is how you keep yourself. You're a child. You have every inheritance, every promise. The problem is when we don't believe, we fall back into acting like slaves even though we've already been made children. And if my children believed that they need to behave in order to have my love, it would break my heart. And yet my relation to God so often, based upon my failures and occasionally successes, must break his heart all the more because he has gone to tremendous expense. I'm going to wrap up with this. I imagine that most of you have either read or seen Oliver Twist. In Oliver Twist, we have a picture of perhaps what many of us view, how we view God. But in Oliver Twist, we have a picture of how we are able to view God. One scene in particular stands out in my memory. Oliver, who lives in an orphanage with no family and has no hope, and he's under the care of people who would rather use him than love him. And a number of the orphans are gathered together to draw straws to see who was going to ask if they could have more gruel because they were hungry and not being given enough. Growing boys and girls need to be fed. And Oliver draws the short straw. And Oliver approaches Mr. Bumble and just says, Please, sir, I want some more. And Mr. Bumble hits him over the head. Essentially curses him or berates him, belittles him, sentences him into solitary. And all along as he's being taken from the dining hall to where he will be locked up for a time, he's being insulted and told how worthless and nothing he is because he dared to approach and ask for something more. The reality is many of us have mindsets of orphans. We are afraid to ask God unless we've been on our best behavior. We're afraid that perhaps we've run out our luck and we dare not ask God for any more. We are afraid that God would point out our worthlessness, our uselessness, and where, all of our wrongs. We are afraid that God is like Mr. Bumble. Our theology says no, but <clears throat> our hearts, our emotions <clears throat> tell us otherwise. But God's not like that. God is more like the character in Oliver Twist, Mr. Brownlow, who in many ways is the hero of the story. Because Mr. Brownlow, simply because he desired to, spared no expense, paid every cost in order to make Oliver his. Paul is writing this letter to people, broken, confused, sometimes zealous, well-intended, conscientious or overly conscientious, but driven because of a fear that maybe God doesn't love us and I'd better earn my keep. And Paul says, no. Do you know you are a child of God because God loved you, he secured it through the giving of his own son and has poured out his spirit to give a down payment and everything he has promised is yours Because he loves you. You and I can experience the joy of the fatherhood of God because the work of the Son has accomplished it and the work of the Spirit is working it out. We simply believe, rejoice, relate, and God is at work. This is our hope. Let me pray. Father, we do give thanks to you for this word, as uncomfortable as it makes us. I pray for all of us here that we would recognize the status and the basis for it. That we are your children because you loved us and enabled us to believe. That we would not be confused about our ideas about what it is that we have to do because we are your children, or what it is that we cannot do because we are children, but lay on the foundation of the fact that we are your children that you would continue to speak to us as a father who will correct and guide and grow us by your word and your spirit. But help us not to be a people who confuse or fuse together your grace with our works. Let us enjoy and be amazed that you, our God, would love us. I pray this, for this is the hope and this is what brings joy as well as the freedom you desire. Grant us to believe.